everyone is still at home. And uh, <clears throat> since our last episode, it's been what, like a week? There's um, we're in the after times now, mm-hmm. so everything works differently. Yeah, you know, AC. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're really we're really during C right now. Yeah, I guess yeah, I don't in know. C. Yeah, um, you know, things are going okay. Um, I got uh, work has like morphed, keeps morphing all the time. It's sort of like feast or famine for me. I have like a lot of meetings. But then, like, all of my projects are, like, very small projects. So I'm, like, chasing down a lot of small stakes answers from people and then just waiting for them. <laughs> just, like, sitting around being, like, what do I do now? Like, and then I was, like, I don't have any, like, big long-term projects. And the other thing is that I'm going on parental leave in, you know, about four weeks because my partner is uh, due. She's pregnant. And so that's like a whole weird thing too, where I'm like heading toward this other sort of like end point where I will be home all the time, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm already here. So, uh, so that's interesting. Yeah. You know, oh, just... speaking of your partner, I mm. should say, uh, I think I can say this by the time this is out, we should have, a uh, the, the, the book that your partner and I did together along with our friend, Chris Santa Maria should mm. be available digitally. Oh no way! The I didn't good, actually. I didn't actually know that. That's great. The good people at uh, the Creative Independent are starting a digital library, um, and ScarJo, the book, is going to be a part of it. So hope I hope I'm not telling stories out of school or or turns out it's not happening. But that should be by the time this comes out uh, uh, out. Uh, so well, it's a that. wonderful book. I cannot advocate it enough. The mm, words mm-hmm. and art are sublime and it's it's a lot of fun yeah um yeah i mean i've i'm i would like to say that i'm like teaching a lot but the weird like the schedule got all scrambled and weird and it turns out that i have barely been teaching at all so far (laughs) because like spring break got cut in two and then like now technically i'm on spring break but eh, like i don't know like so I don't like contact with my students is totally weird. So that's weird. I'm mostly just focusing on, on doing the other things that I have to do and other freelance stuff that I have to do. And then also of course, in trying to socialize Roxy, the cat who I think it's kind of coming along. We're having a little bit of a breakthrough. Roxy, though she still lives under the stairs. Most of the time is now of her own volition starting to come upstairs, Ah. uh, looking for food. But where she would not do that at all before, late at night, you know, maybe around 11 or, or midnight or so, when we're kind of starting to get getting ready to pack it in, she will just kind of come sauntering upstairs. If we move too much or look directly at her for too long... She'll dart away. Gone. Yeah. Gone. But I think this is a positive sign. Yeah. So, you know, you know. This is how it happens. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh maybe 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 this experience will be in some way emotionally gratifying at some point in the future it's certainly not now that's the hope <laughs> you couldn't really even get her out if you wanted to right like yeah we could okay they're still they're still operating. if somebody wanted to someone to adopt they could adopt this cat today i would love that if you would like to adopt this fucking oh no, oh, no. not me like skittish animal uh, please. She's very sweet. She's very nice. She just doesn't want to be seen yet. Yeah. Or she doesn't want to leave her zone. 
Um, so that's what's up with Roxy. That's yeah. the main thing. One thing I wanted to bring up just very briefly, I don't want to dwell too much on it, was the thing I've noticed like going outside is that... Wait, Gabe. What? Why are we here? Well, we're here well, we're here to interview someone no, very no, special. No, but what, what is mean? this conversation? Well, this is faking it. Oh god, yes. And a what show are we... where we check our cultural blind spots, <laughs> make up for past wrongs, and come to terms with the shameful lies we've told. We cannot let all standards fall by the wayside. I just okay? thought, we I just, need to re- stay human here. I just thought it would be obvious to anyone listening who we are and what we do. Okay. Anyway, go on. But that is us. And uh, I was thinking about our our preoccupation here when I was, uh, you know, taking a walk. Yesterday I took a walk ostensibly to sort of like clear my head and, you know, sort of just have some air. Instead, I just saw a bunch of other people and felt really anxious. Mm-hmm. But I tried my best to like put on a good face, you know, or under my mask, uh, of course. And... You know, people walk by, you sort of like give them a glance, maybe a nod or something. And it's like total, like I don't, I almost don't want to look at anyone. You know what I mean? It's almost that like, and that's the worst part is that like, I'm not fearful of these people walking past me, you know, six feet away or however far on the street. But I think that there are some people and I'm trying to be one of them who are just kind of just trying to be like, hey, you know, what's up? Like. Or, you know, especially to my neighbors, but then they all like everyone just like turns away. I just think that is that is pandemic bad faith game. <sighs> like you need to lean in to the horror and revulsion we're supposed to feel about the presence of other people. Yeah, stay back. Flee. Yeah. 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 And through above your mask, try to like raise your eyebrows in a <laughs> in an alarmed fashion. We were in the park, which is equally like it's very pleasant, but it's also sort of a nightmare because you're just like, there's a lot, way too many people in the park. Yeah. And we were playing with Lonnie and he kicked a ball and this like, this woman, maybe like 60, 65 was like out for a walk and like, was like approaching his soccer ball and like went to pick it up. And Christina and I are like, no, no, like no. stop. No. And she had her headphones in. She didn't really hear it. She ended up kicking the ball to us, which was fine. It was hard. To, it was hard to keep up a, keep up a peppy uh, sort of, you know, outer bearing in that moment. Lean into the misery. Yeah. Um. So we'll we'll do one quick thing, and then we're going to bring our guest on. So we should each just, I think, really quick talk about one thing that uh, that we're enjoying uh, and is getting us through this this time, the time of the of the corona. Yeah, and I want to hear uh, from our guest also once once we do the intro. Um, you want to go first? The cocktail historian. And drinks writer David Wondrich uh, is doing this thing he calls Lo-Fi Lush Hour around 6 o'clock every day, weekdays, weekends, since there's no difference anymore, apparently. And it's just a it's a cocktail recipe, basically. And he kind of like takes a picture of each step of the thing. This is on and, Instagram or? No, it's on, um, it's on, Twitter. on Twitter. Uh So he's at David Wondrich. Mm-hmm. And... It's really nice, first of all, to have something that I enjoy and I'm interested in, and it's got this periodicity to it, where it's just like, whatever else is happening. I know it's six, six o'clock when that thing pops onto mm-hmm. my feed. Mm-hmm. And also the thing, because I, I like making cocktails. I enjoy it. and But I'm also just like uh, uh, totally anxious about following recipes. I have to follow them. Exactly, but none of us, or I get like, I'm just like, oh, I'm going to fuck it up. It's going to be bad. <laughs> and we cannot afford to waste liquor at a time like this. And no. <laughs> so I 
I one of the things that he does is like he's like, well, here's how you make it, but like if you don't have this, use this, or if you don't have that, then you can get away with this. Just like change the proportions this much and this much, and it's nice to kind of get a weird kind of permission for just you know going off book and and using the uh, using what you have and and having faith that like if you kind of at least basically sort of know what you're doing then you'll turn out with something that's that's good that, that tastes good and it's enjoyable and that hopefully you can have three or four of before you know you know to to disable yourself enough to to get to sleep that night that's my recommendation uh david wondrich lo-fi lush hour at david wondrich that's a good one uh i'm gonna start with uh sort of like an anti one which is that like like everyone else in New York City anyway, I was like, well, I'll also be one of those people who make sourdough bread now, <clears throat> but I've not gotten past the starter stage. And uh, all of the like tutorials or like videos I've watched of people being like, you can do this are terrifying. And it feels like I definitely can't do it. And it's like so many steps. And I'm like, why am I, why am I setting this project where you have to be like really good at this thing for it to turn out like, I mean, of course it's edible. But like, no, I want like, I, I like delicious bread. Anyway, so we'll see how that goes. But the thing that I like is actually a web show that I have watched in the past by these like sort of street racer tuner guys called Hoonigan. And um, they like, they do car modifications and Japanese imports and all, all kinds of, you know, uh, all kinds of things to make their cars incredibly ridiculous and have tremendous horsepower anyway they're all of course quarantined as well so they're doing these shows where it's just them in their home garage and they're all different kinds of dudes and they're not all dudes actually that's 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 unfair there's like one or two uh non-dudes but it's fascinating to see these people who are like also kind of just like making do because they're not in the they're not in like the big garage where they all work with all the gear and they can order anything they want if they're missing something they like go to AutoZone, which i guess is open in the suburbs and like you know, buy one thing, whatever's there. And then they go back to their tiny garage. Like there's a guy in New York who has like the smallest garage I've ever seen, just packed to the gills with stuff. And he's just kind of like working and his kids there. And like, it's fun. It's like, it's almost like I like the show more because it's much more human. And it's much less like, we're like superheroes who like make these cars into rocket ships. You know, it's more like, I got this old car in my garage. I've been meaning to work on it for like years. And now I'm going to, like, slowly improve it a little bit. Could you imagine having enough space to have a fucking spare car that you've been meaning to work on? That is insane to me. Yeah, I think it's only because, like, this, you know, the one guy in New York must live in Queens or something and has, like, a garage and a short driveway. So he has, like, his car and then his other car. But, yeah, that's nuts. I just imagine having, like, a half-built car in my living room and being (laughs) like, oh, God. (laughs) <laughs> I really got to do something with this, man. Uh, um, okay, great. So those are two great uh, re- recommendations, I think. Two great things that people uh, should check out. So let's bring our guest on. This week, we have got Kevin Wynn with us. Hi, Kevin. Hey, how's it going? Great. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for sitting through our, our introduction. Kevin is a writer. He's a journalist. He is uh, an editor at The Verge. And he is also a novelist. His novel, New Waves, came out... When did it actually come out? A couple months ago? Uh, no, March 10th. So like oh, right before. Oh okay, Very yeah. recently. Yeah. Very recently. Uh, right under the wire, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got fresh reading from Kevin. 
and uh, yeah, it's a great novel. I heartily, heartily recommend it. It's funny and uh, sad and moving and, and all the things that you want a novel to be. And we're, we're going to get into that a little bit later. Um, so how are you how are you handling things, Kevin? You doing okay? Yeah, I think like doing okay. Um, you know, uh, it's funny. I had a friend who said that New York right now is like all the none of the good parts of New York and just all the bad parts, which is just you hanging out in your tiny apartment. So, um, but all things considered, you know, I still have a job, so I can't complain too much. Yeah. Great. Do you have any rec, anything that you want to recommend that's been getting you through this? Yeah, actually, you know, um, I've, I've been having this problem and a few friends of mine have been having this problem. It's just been, like been really hard to read. Like I'm usually like a book a week person, like a minimum. And I think for like the first three weeks of quarantine, I just like could not, I tried to, to read it and I couldn't really do it. Uh, but then I read uh, this new novel, Temporary, by I think it's Hilary Lichter, Lichter. It's short, first of all, and it's very funny. And I think that helped a lot. But basically, it's about this woman. Um, it's, it's a largely sort of surreal novel, but she just keeps working all these temp jobs and they get very quickly, like, escalatingly absurd. Like, she works on a pirate ship as a temp and then <laughs> she's at a temp for an assassin. Um, and I think it just really helps. So like once I had I'd knocked that out, which took like maybe a day or two days, I was like able to start reading other stuff again. That was sort of like maybe longer and and more challenging. Um, but that book is great, and I don't know. It just kind of like broke this this spell for me, which was which feels like a gift, honestly. I've made the poor decision to start reading Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain, which is not That's really long, right? It's, it's incredibly long. It's like seven hundred pages or something. I don't know why I'm doing this. Well, it's about illness. It's great. It's perfect. Yeah, but it's like, but it's the same problem that Kevin just raised, where it's like this long thing. It seems like I'm never, it's impossible to concentrate on, on on basically anything right now. Why am I doing this? <laughs> yeah, I feel like the flip side of it too is like every movie I was watching for a while was like essentially candy. Yeah, and like if you watch enough of that stuff for long enough, it just like makes you feel ill. <laughs> yeah. I rewatched the other guys last night. So I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I mean, I've just been watching like a lot of Disney plus shit, man. Like, uh, just wrecking all the Pixar movies, which are, which are good. Uh, sure. but it just kind of leaves you feeling like wanting. Um, <laughs> so what we normally do here is we normally, um, start out by kind of like going into the past of our in our guest lives and sort of thinking about uh or asking them to sort of like talk about some kind of initial instance of deception or fakery or fabrication or something like that and to kind of like work through it so you've got we kind of asked you to prep a little bit and and you've got something that's that's not from childhood it's a bit later in, in your 20s right yeah it's actually the timing is interesting too because i've been thinking about that time a lot because i graduated in 2009 um, from college uh, so crash 2008 I graduate the following May and there are, there are basically like no jobs so I spent something like a year and a half like a, getting jobs on Craigslist making less money than I did for my work-study job in college <laughs> um, I'm in Seattle and like this kind of funny thing is happening in Seattle the time where where Amazon's been there for a while but like Amazon is like really on up and up um, it's starting to become like the predominant force in the city and, you know, I'm like 22, so I'm not really reckoning with the meaning of Amazon becoming this, like, huge global force. But 
you know, like if you're in Seattle and you're like 22 or 23 and you just like want to make money, you just want to work at Amazon. And that's that's what I did. And I, uh, I applied for a job and I got one after all these like part time jobs. And I just remember, too, like uh, I got this job as a merchandiser in the books department and uh, the starting salary was fifty thousand dollars a year. And I was like, oh, my God. You I would it. never make more money than this. <laughs> like it just just seemed like an insane amount of money. That was double the salary I was making before, and yeah, it was. So it was. A, I was very excited to be there. And this was also, I think it was probably like 20, 2014 that like the big New York Times story by Jody Cantor dropped uh, that just sort of like revealed like how awful the work conditions inside Amazon were, like even for the white collar workers. Mm-hmm. But this is like my first adult job. So I, I get in there, I'm doing like really menial things. Like I like am just doing the equivalent of like pushing buttons on a computer. You know, it's like beep, beep, boop, boop all day long while like people are kind of like being really mean to me. Um, <laughs> and I was like, maybe this is just what a job is. And so I was just like really grateful for like the beginning of my career, if you can call it that. And uh, I don't know, I just remember I had like just nothing like in common with like a lot of the dude bros I worked with. And some of the dude ladies, too. And so everyone was just obsessed with the Seattle Seahawks. Seattle is, like, surprisingly, like, kind of a big football town these days. Uh, They'd gone to the Super Bowl a few years before that, you know, um, with Matt Hasselbeck. And then I think lost to Ben Roethlisberger and the Pittsburgh Steelers. That's, like, trivia or that's, like, a fact that I did not know at the time um, because I just did not really watch football. I didn't really watch a lot of sports at the time. And so I was like, oh, if I'm going to, if I'm going to like be able to talk to these people, like I should just like, I should learn about football. So I started watching some games, you know, just started reading up a lot. And like, after like a few months, like about half of the season, I was suddenly in very deep. And what just started as like a way to talk to uh, like my angry coworkers ended up becoming like a real obsession for me. So wait, uh, so like let, to- let, let, can, can we back up real quick, right? Yeah. yeah. So I want to know about the first time you kind of like dip your toe into the first conversation where you're like, oh, here we go. I'm going to talk about football. What was that like? Because it, it can it's it can be extremely intimidating to especially when you're when you're around like a really obsessive fan base to talk about this thing when you're a, when you're a newcomer. Yeah, no, I, I I vaguely sort of recall where I'm still like intimidated by all these people. So like someone's just like, it's like, oh yeah, like you know Marshawn Lynch, and I'll be like running back, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and I just like people say names, I would just like say their position, and like I don't know, it just really sounded like I was like a like a cop infiltrating a high school. It was just like I had just read the Wikipedia and I was just like naming things off. Did people clock you? Were they like, uh huh? No, they well, they probably did, but like they were too busy just like gabbing about stuff. And I don't know if you guys watch football, but like the majority of football fans, they like speak loudly about it, but like kind of don't really understand how the sport works at all. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. they think it's just hitting people, and that's like the exciting thing for them. And I think if you get to a different level of appreciation for the sport, it becomes like just like extremely tactical uh, to the point where it, like it you have to be obsessive, and it like is very it's actually a quite boring um and it's kind of the opposite <laughs> yeah. of like what people think of it it's like it's really every football player is like so deeply intelligent like the number of plays you have to memorize is just like i don't know how people retain that kind of information especially when you're being hit in the head repeatedly yeah <laughs> well and teams have whole you know teams have 
sort of personalities insofar as like they have stri- they have strategic goals that will change over time depending on the coaches and the and the you know the the uh, the uh, position coaches or whatever but like that's something to know too right is like what kind of a team is the Seahawks what kind of a team are, are the Steelers or are the Eagles or are the Bears or whatever and they have like long traditions of what they are and then also shorter traditions of like what they are now so like I'm I'm like a very fair weather sports fan in general but in terms of football or in terms of all sports I've always been like a Philly fan because I'm from Pennsylvania and whatever and the Eagles of course have had like very interesting ups and downs in the last few years which I've followed at a distance like I'm not I'm not trying to like get into it you weren't on the street after they won the Super Bowl like no, finding a light pole in your, that, in your that underwear had, or something that had been that had been greased by the Philadelphia Police Department <laughs> to, on to purpose no avail. to no avail matter. they made it up anyway but they really did grease those poles that's the kind of stuff that I really like to know about football is that those kinds of details but I, I guess I guess my question is like you, you started getting into this stuff you had never been interested in it before how did it feel to kind of like have it take hold of you do you do this with other stuff like do you get obsessed you know or was it like more like you found something in it that you really really dug and really felt real to you yeah it was funny I actually don't consider myself like an obsessive person um, and what was also kind of interesting is the year that I really got in at Seahawks was. Uh, it was a year like Tavares Jackson was the quarterback. So it was like a real down year for this team. And I just remember every game that I watched uh, was really exciting because the game, the team was just awful. Uh, and every time something good would happen, it just like felt like a gift. <laughs> um, so everyone I was talking to at work about it was just like supremely disappointed every Monday morning. And I was just like, did you guys see this thing? Did you guys see that? Like, yeah. this is amazing, you know? Um, and I, I'm sure that like my, my like pure wonder about this sport probably gave me away. Um, but I also started playing, um, Madden on the PlayStation. Uh, and what was kind of funny about that is like, uh-huh. it's not, it's not, it's like a pretty complicated, it's complicated for a video game, but like, you're just like, you're learning plays. You're suddenly learning how to like read defensive coverage. Mm-hmm. You're, you're kind of getting into it on a level that is a lot more technical than, and, and it's hard to see when you're when you're actually playing or when you're actually watching on TV. Um, and then it was sort of like, I think that's sort of what got its hooks on in me. Like, it'd be funny to like play like the arcade version on your PlayStation. And then like suddenly you'd be watching on TV and you're like, oh, like they're doing zone coverage right now. I can tell because like of the way these guys are moving or not moving. And yeah. And then I remember when I would I would bring some of those like insights uh, to the the water cooler conversations Um at Amazon and and suddenly all these dudes who like never paid me any attention or gave me any mind uh just like were suddenly interested in what I had to say I mean was that like an empowering feeling or a, or, or was it valid I mean like what did it feel like to have that kind of like status shift Yeah I mean it was in- incredibly uh I mean it sounds pathetic in hindsight but like I was 23 or whatever um and in my first adult job um surrounded largely with uh people who were um older than me, more, you know, more established than me. Uh, I don't know, from like these nice families, they went to these nice schools. Like I I was really intimidated by the whole thing. And I, it was funny too, because probably speaks more about me than it does about them. But like, I was just so intimidated. I just thought everyone was smarter than me. Um, And then slowly, as I realized like that, they just like obsess over football and like such a surface level, like they just want to see people get hit. I was like, Maybe they're not that smart. 
did it reach a point? I mean, it sounds like it, it sort of progressed quickly. Like, did you get to a point sort of like swiftly where you were kind of like leaving them behind in terms of like the kinds of conversations you wanted to have about about the games? Yeah, it didn't take long. I think it was like over the course of that season and, and certainly by next season, I was like reading a lot of stuff in the off season. And, uh, you know, there's like just a lot of... Uh, rich writing yeah. about football on a very technical level um, which is a lot of fun and uh, what's kind of interesting is like you would imagine that like someone that worked at Amazon like ostensibly a tech company like you could see them nerding out on this kind of stuff but like at least the people I work with who are not who are not engineers they're like project managers and that kind of thing like they had zero interest in in learning about it on that level like they just wanted to be drunk and scream at a TV which is a thing I can definitely appreciate as well uh, but yeah, like as soon as I was talking about, like they don't even know the difference between zone versus man coverage, and that's like a, it's a huge thing about the Seahawks. You know, they always play zone. You know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, and and at that point, like, did you? It's it's become part of your life at this point, right? Like it's become like a serious interest. Was there then like a sort of motivation to find your people, like to find like not not these coworkers who have like a sort of passing interest or kind of like a weekend interest? But like to find communities or whatever, whether they be online or, 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 you know, with your friends or whatever. Yeah. So like a few years later, I think it was the fall of 2012 was when I moved to New York uh, and I didn't know very many people. And again, I know like every story is just like me being <laughs> intimidated by people. But uh, I don't know, like I kind of found a few friends on like Seahawks Twitter. Yeah. Um. You know, uh, I have like a good friend in Nat Wiener, who's uh, I think she was writing for Billboard at the time, but now she works at SB Nation. I guess we're technically colleagues. And so she's she's big in the Seahawks game. And then uh, there was this business writer at uh, Bloomberg, uh, Mina Kimes, uh, who I also met on Twitter and we hung out a few times and we're friendly. And, and now she's like uh, she's like a talking head on ESPN. She's like big time. Yeah, she's like real big time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, there was a time where, like, we knew the same amount about football, you know. Mm. Um, she obviously knows an extreme, extreme amount of football now uh, that has would just eclipse anyone. Um, but just kind of funny watching that, like, progression. Like, she wasn't writing about football professionally. Like, she was just this incredible business reporter. And now, I don't know, she's actually, like, super impressive, too, because, like, she's like a, like a talking head on ESPN. She does, like, a podcast. And she's, like, still this incredible features writer and interviewer. And Yeah, she's very, very cool. Jessica and I knew her before she had made that transition, not very well because um, like we knew it through her partner. Um, oh yeah, the Pitchfork connection. Yeah, That's yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, I've met Nick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Nick's a great guy. They're both great people. And and I, you know, I didn't know her very well uh, at the time, and it just seemed like out of left field. But then when do you see the how? First of all, how smart she is, and what a great writer she is. I just had no idea if she had all of that knowledge at the time and it was just like had found a place for it to go. Or as you say, it was just something that she was learning as she was doing, which is like even more impressive and intimidating. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, she went over to ESPN to be a writer, I believe. Um, and so I think once she, she got that job, she was learning a lot. But like, I think up until that point, you know, she was just someone that like was mostly like fairly casual and, and probably at the time had like a bigger heart than brain about the sport and now it's you know totally flipped uh <laughs> now it's her job yeah right did fantasy football ever appeal to you did you did you ever do it oh was yeah that a thing I, in the office as well yeah just like so I, I left amazon i like was in a bunch of other jobs um 
in various forms of tech, you know, I, I, the whole time I've, I've been writing and editing on the side. And then I finally get my first like professional um, editing job at GQ, um, which was amazing. And I, I ran the, uh, the fantasy football league there for a couple of years um, oh, okay. while I was there. <laughs> so, yes, you um, played fantasy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was funny, too, because uh, GQ was largely uh, like an NBA office. Yeah. Um, like people watch football, um, but I was definitely among the people that knew the most about it and definitely watched the most. At the time, too, I started on the on GQ's website um, before, like, I got promoted and they combined everything. Um, but there was like a real divide between the digital side and the print side. Um, and the print side had, you know, a lot of the storied editors. They had like a lot more power. We were pretty separate. And uh, fantasy football kind of like put everyone in the same room, um, yeah. which was kind of fun. I mean, literally for the draft. Yeah, um, I actually remember too. Uh, you know, like the digital side uh, had so little money comparatively. And I was like, I was like, oh man, like I wish we could order pizza. And then like one of the print editors was like, oh, just put it on my Amex, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Did that stoke your competitive spirit? Were you like, did it become like, I've got a show that we can do more with less and stomp the print side? (laughs) (laughs) No, we just got along. The other thing that's funny too is like, I think if you play enough fantasy football, like, you just know that it's horseshit, you know, like uh, there is a way of watching enough football, reading enough that like maybe you can have an advantage, but like largely it is the people who know the most about football never win their league, right? Mm-hmm. The people who know the least never win, but like there's always this like kind of like middle tier that is putting in the right amount of effort. I think. Yeah. <laughs> That's just a nice lesson for life. You know, you don't want to put in too much effort, but not too little either. Right in the middle, right in the perfect middle. place to be. So, but this is actually for you. This this leads to sort of something substantive within GQ, right? So, do you want to talk about your about how the this big cover story came about for you uh, as an editor? Yeah, I mean, um, there was this great editor there, Devin Gordon, and he was another person that that did know quite a bit about football. Although he was like a real homer, so he's a big Jets fan. So I think he put Mark Sanchez on the cover of GQ once. So <laughs> we'll probably never live that down. But we got uh, Colin Kaepernick for a man of the year cover, um, which was big at the time. Like he hadn't done any press really since he had started protesting. Um, you know, his silence was part of his protest. Um, and so we had to do this like really strange version of a profile where um, we kind of talked to like all the people in his life. And it, it ended up getting like this really cool oral history in a way of uh of Colin Kaepernick and, and how he became uh, active in Black Lives Matter, um, among other things. And uh, it was the first cover story I got to work on. I did one of the interviews. I like got to edit it. And, you know, partly, too, it's like just Devin was too busy, I think, maybe with one of the other cover stories, because the Men of the Year issue is like three or four covers each year. But yeah, just like that football knowledge uh, got me in with like another white dude bro. Uh, <laughs> so I... <laughs> I just like I, it's weird uh, that I'm like very thankful for that. And and, you know, it's interesting too. like um, in the last decade, of course, we've just been more and more aware of the myriad of problematic things about football. You know, I think I think the order of it was uh, first it was uh, domestic abuse. And then the year after it was concussions. Um, and then a couple years after that, if I get the timing right, um, it was the Kaepernick stuff. Um, so they're just yeah. mm-hmm. every year is a new reason for me to quit. Uh, and I keep trying to, but I, I just think I'm, I'm in too deep now. Yeah. You know, for some people, that's only deepened their sort of resolve to support 
the athletes and support the sort of culture that they believe in in this sport that they think can get over these things or can address them head on or whatever. And then some people are like, yeah, I don't really want to watch it anymore. How has that been for you? Or where do you, you know, I'm not like, where do you stand? But like, what do you think about all that? Yeah, it's been interesting because I do have like a handful of friends who I like used to watch football with in my early days of New York when I, you know, um, had just moved here that have just like completely divested for one or or many of those reasons. Um, And I totally understand that. And I don't know, I, I, I just kind of keep making these like attempts to, to stop, um, which I know seems like half-hearted because uh, like obviously you can control what you watch on TV. There's just something, there's like a pleasure about reading about the sport and, and, and watching it. And there's something in the world that's just like, is always really appealing to me. And I don't know, I think uh, like all the problematic things about football just like feel emblematic of something bigger, you mm-hmm. know, like the most meaningful mainstream protest uh, like for police brutality in the past few years like was Ferguson. But then like a quick second is like Colin Kaepernick taking mm-hmm. a kneel uh, during a football yeah. game, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I think there's just an element in like if you care about like social justice, uh, you can't just completely disregard sports, which is the one place where people of color, particularly black people, have a lot of power um, in ways and don't have a lot of power in other ways and are very mm-hmm. visible. I mean, and this is something, I mean, I, I guess there's a couple things about that, right? So to the latter point, right? This is something that it's often so hard to keep in focus because when you're looking at the players, right? And whether it's basketball or, or, or football, right? You know, you have these guys that are getting paid like millions and millions of dollars and it's a lot of money by any standards. And it's very difficult to kind of keep in you know, to keep in mind that despite all of that, there is a much smaller group of almost uniformly white guys that are making exponentially more money um, off of all of an interest that are right. So that you can't kind of keep the labor dynamics in focus. And I think that that gets leveraged in a lot of ways. I mean, you just see it clear as day with the Colin Kaepernick thing because people go like, oh, here's this guy's making millions of dollars. What's he complaining about? Right. But it's like, well, no, like, even though it's functioning with much higher dollar values, there is still this labor management, you know, power differential that's going on. And these guys are only getting that amount of money because of the massive, massive, massive amount of money that's changing hands because of what they're doing, <laughs> right? It's just, it's like this right. deranging power that like large dollar amounts has over our ability to think clearly about a given situation. And just because they're not like making minimum wage or below minimum wage or whatever, we kind of put aside issues of you know autonomy and personal control or it's easier to for some reason. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think the other thing that that what you've what you've said makes me think about, right, is just, you know, the distinction between wanting to kind of embody and live the ethical and moral standards that any one of us like wants to uphold and letting go of like the sort of pleasure we take in certain as it turns out problematic, you know, forms of entertainment or our culture or whatever, right? This has just been like especially after the Me Too movement, one of those vexing uh, questions. And I think there's just like sometimes a lot of bad faith that goes on 
with the idea that just because something bad is happening, you can just abandon your attachments to it, you know, and take a hard moral or ethical stand. That's possible for some people, right? And it's possible in some circumstances or necessary in some circumstances, but it is like implausible mm-hmm. or, or, or kind of unreasonable to expect that people will be able to do that. Well, it's also just like, it's easier to, in some ways it's easier to abandon something than it is to like wrestle with it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to say that, like, I only watch the NFL because, like, I believe in, like, the protests against, like, police brutality. Uh, Like, I enjoy things about the sport. And then I I have to enjoy it. And then I have to constantly, like, swim in the messiness of it. Um, And the fact that, like, a lot of it is problematic. And I think that's, like, there's just, like, no pure way to enjoy anything ethically. You know, like, you always have to take certain concerns. It's, like... It's not like Me Too made people stop going to the movies, you know? No. Um, but I think, like, obviously, like, a lot of things changed and a lot of... No, Amazon Amazon made us <laughs> stop going. To- <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, well, like, I literally work for Amazon, so I have I've directly benefited uh, from Amazon. And I, I have really conflicting opinions about it. Um, but I think, you know, that's... We should have conflicting opinions about everything, so... I mean, I think I think what's sort of beautiful about this whole story is that, like... You know, the initial burst was kind of like, well, I'm, I'm in an office with all these people. I don't really know how to relate to them, but they clearly are into this one thing that I don't, I don't really know that much about. Let's let's check it out. And then you quickly like take to it. Um, it works. You know, you're not really faking it. You kind of like maybe maybe you fake it the first time when you're like running back, you know, tight end. <laughs> like, <laughs> but then eventually it grows into this like great thing in your life. And then even as it gets, you know, very complicated over the past few years, and these are not necessarily new complications, they're just like sort of being brought to light. I mean, I think that that also seems to dovetail. I mean, it certainly, it actually makes football not maybe more interesting to watch for me, but it's a more interesting cultural touchstone mm-hmm. right right now, just to be like, even if you don't watch the games, like just to sort of like have an opinion about like what we've been talking about, you know, that like, it is this like, kind of typical workplace where like you know a bunch of very rich people are in this case exploiting a bunch of sort of really rich people Mm -hmm. and um but it's no less you know it's just scaled differently than most workplaces you know um yeah anyway and and, and, sorry sorry to interrupt but but i just want to say like i think that that's interesting given the things that you write about and the kind of the kinds of other stuff that that you seem to be interested just based on like having read your stuff um following you on twitter that's fascinating too. This thing that started out just to like kind of like fit in or, or, or meet some people or just sort of like grease the wheels, you know, became something that was like much deeper for you. Yeah. I think sort of like, um, especially with a lot of the stuff that I, I edit and, and write about, um, there are just like no answers, you know? Um, and so you just have to live with like the complications of things and, um, I think football has actually really helped me live with that stuff, you know, um, to be able to enjoy something that, you know, has, um, a lot of issues, um, a lot of issues that make it reprehensible, um, and still like to be able to, to reckon with that, um, and still experience it. And that is just how a lot of like the issues that we deal with now, um, that's just how they stand, you know? Cool. Well, um, I think this is a good time for us to take a little break. Um, but we'll be back. Back in 
Okay, we are back. We're replenished. We're refreshed. It's actually three days later. Uh, <laughs> That's just how time works in the quarantine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, Kevin, now I wanted to move, uh, kind of like shift the conversation a little bit to talk about like you and books. So the first time like I became aware of you was on Twitter uh, talking about uh, about books. I don't remember what, but I just started seeing you getting retweeted by people that I followed. And I was like, this is probably someone I should follow. And you're a re- like, you are like a capital R reader. You read more than anyone. You seem to read everything uh, that comes out in a given year. And you sometimes, I don't know if you do this regularly, but I, either last year or the year before, I noticed you had put up like a list of like books, like a spreadsheet of like books that you had, or maybe you'd made reference to, um, to like what books you had read and it was like an unholy number of books like do you can you just like talk a little bit about your your approach to reading yeah I, I should clarify uh that I used to read a lot more than I do now like I'm at a I'm at about a book a week I would say so mm-hmm. I probably polish off like 50 something books a year I used to be at like about 150 um mm-hmm. and that was partly too because uh my at Amazon I, I changed jobs and when I moved to New York and I was on this team that just, it was like a great job where we would just pick the best books of the month. Like we just had a list of 10. So like my days just involved like reading. And then like if publishers wanted to meet, I would have lunch with them and they would tell me about books. And, and so my, my life was really immersed in that. And why did you ever leave that job? That, that was the best job that ever was. <laughs> um, I actually, I mean, I left because uh, there was this summer where I don't know if you guys remember, this is like some publishing nitty gritty, but uh Amazon was in negotiations with this one of the big five publishers, uh, Hachette, um, mm-hmm. and the negotiations were not going well. So as a tactic, uh, Amazon pulled all of the buy buttons from Hachette books on the website. Oh, yeah. Um, and yeah. so, uh, I don't know, it was kind of the first time I was reckoning with what Amazon does to, to businesses, what just to people, what just to culture. And uh, so I quit over that. Um, so you took a principal stand. You were like, this isn't right. And it's actually bad for the thing that I that I actually got into this to start doing. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to, like, valorize myself too much. Like, I did line up a job before I quit. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it's like a very fast month where I was um, emailing places I wanted to work for to see if they had things um, for me. And uh, were, so... were all your emails like, do you have a job where I just read all day? And then sometimes <laughs> I'm taken out to lunch and then I have to rank stuff. <laughs> Yeah, so a lot of these places did not email me back. Uh, you'd be stunned to hear. Uh, but thankfully, like one startup did uh, that was like a book related startup that was trying to take on Amazon and um, eventually failed. Uh, but it was a good it was a good attempt. But but yeah, so I, I was reading a lot. And I think one thing that was interesting about working at Amazon um, and reading for ostensibly like anyone who buys books is I was forced to read a lot more broadly than I would have regularly. And it was sort of this like era where young adult fiction was being taken a lot more seriously. Um, and in some ways it was the most exciting. Um, mm-hmm. it, I mean, like this is just like right after the hunger games. Um, so there's like this trend is already happening, but like, there's no way I would have read as much young adult fiction. Um, if that wasn't the case. Um, and if I wasn't working at Amazon and I think I learned a lot from, from those books, even though they're not for me or, or of particular interest to me. Um, but I'm just glad I read that and like a lot of thrillers and, and even a little bit of, of romance. Um, 
So, so yeah, there was a time where I just like I wanted to consume as much of everything as possible in the books world. And I think usually when you're a reader, like you're just trying to find your rabbit hole and go down it, you know? Yeah. Um, you've, you've made another kind of transition like within that world, because now obviously besides, you know, being a journalist and an editor, you're uh, you published a novel. That's a big decision to like start to do it. Is that something you had always wanted to do? Did you always see that as your ambition or was that something that had emerged out of some other, some other idea? Yeah, I will say um, I get asked this question sometimes when I like talk to college classes about journalism um, in particular, mm -hmm. and I realize that I, what is the truthful answer always sounds kind of disingenuous. Um, but like, sure, like the idea of writing and editing for a living, the idea of like writing a novel that we published, like all of that stuff, like sounded great to me as a kid. It never seemed like a thing that I could do or would do. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm really grateful and very lucky. But all the moves I made in those directions were never deliberate. And and then all the writing and editing I was doing, there was never like a plan that it would work. I was just doing it to do it. Mm -hmm. um, like for a long time in, in my 20s, I ran like a very earnest like lit blog and we published like three times a week. And, and, and so I was just editing and, and writing that for free. In fact, it cost me money. Like the server costs were, <laughs> were not inexpensive uh, at the time. And then... Uh, and, you know, eventually I, I landed at GQ. And then when I was writing this novel, uh, I, I started writing it on my phone and, and writing on the weekends and a little bit for work. And I did not have any expectation that someone would want to represent it or sell it. Um, you know, the, the furthest I got, honestly, was I was like, this will be like a thing that goes in the drawer. And then like, I'll, then I'll know how to write a novel the second time mm -hmm. around. I know that sounds like really disingenuous, but uh, I I really didn't think these things were possible. Um and so, I mean, time. come on. Oh, I just want to <laughs> know about like the deep, deep pain that you are, <laughs> you know, expressing through this work, right? That, that, you know, the deep reservoir of feeling you've always felt can only be expressed through the fictional form, Kevin. I mean, let's, let's come on, let's peel it away, man. Let's peel <laughs> the layers away. I will, there's actually like some truth to that. Like uh, a lot of the ideas that are in um, the novel are things that I wanted to report out in journalism and felt like it would be impossible to do that because um, mm -hmm. a lot of the book deals with um you know the what it's like to work inside of a tech company a lot of the kinds of like smaller forms of racism that happen every day that kind of sort of accumulate um, but those are things that are hard to report out because they're they're very feelingsy yeah and yeah i don't know i think that like you need the interiority that uh that a novel can offer to to even attempt those things. And, and hopefully I've attempted them well. So it's interesting to me that this is the way that you're th like this description, right? Because like, there's another version of you that like, doesn't write a novel that instead, not that you would ever do this, but this other evil version of you that just engages in Stephen Glass, like, you know, journalistic malfeasance instead of <laughs> like being like, well, you know, this is really the stuff of fiction and, and shouldn't be used for journalism, right? But, you know, it, it's interesting that what seems to, like, that there's some kind of felt lack, right, in journalistic practice there, that there's something that should be coverable, but isn't coverable within the constraints of the form. Yeah, I mean, the difference is, I think, like, uh, you know, the glass version, it's like, he's making a version, he's like fabricating things and making the story louder than it is, right? Mm -hmm. And all the things that I was sort of wrestling with are things that are actually like, 
too quiet to put in journalism. Mm. Um, and then it's not a fault of journalism. I think it should remain this way, but like journalism is, is fact-based and a lot of things like journal or uh, a lot of things like racism or sexism or, or you know, uh, or class stuff, that stuff is, is, it's just hard to put a finger on a lot of the times, right? Like the only way you can report out racism is if it's like a hate crime or there's like a slur involved, you know, um, all the small versions of it, just like they don't add up to a reader, um, when you're reading it in, in a newspaper. Mm. That it's unclear whether something actually happened or what, where the happening actually occurred because it's something that primarily occurs in the kind of like sort of shared mental social you know affective space between two or more people well yeah right? it would almost be like more false like you'd have to make it a trend piece be like these these, <laughs> yeah. these five people are experiencing the same small thing in five different the hot new trend yeah as <laughs> opposed to like these five people are experiencing five completely different things that are like sort of related and like are mostly about how they feel and like they don't sound like maybe maybe they don't even sound like much but like when you put them together they don't make an article but they do make you know a story um yeah part of the impetus of writing this book is a lot of the so i think like in the past five years probably maybe a little longer um just like novels by people of color are are just those are just things that are actually being published um in a meaningful way uh but also like a lot of the, you know, the gatekeepers of that stuff are still a lot of white people. Um, and I guess like a lot of the racism I was reading about in novels um, and, and in novels that are good was a form of racism where it's like, it was always this force that was killing people. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it always had to be explained and then it always had to kill people. Um, and I, that is, that's real. You know, I don't want to take away from yeah. that. Um, but I just think as someone who like lives in New York and like has a lot of friends of color of a certain kind of privilege, it's like the way racism kind of manifests in a, on a day-to-day basis. It's like, it's just like a lot of small things that happen that just like slowly weigh on you. And the worst part about it is when you experience them, you're just like, am I just being insensitive? Like, did that person look at me weirdly, you know, because I'm Asian or just because like, I just like misinterpreted that and now I'm being oversensitive. And then like, you have that. Uh, conflict in your brain and it just like it makes you crazy you know yeah um and i want that was the thing i really wanted to get on the page in some way and like that is not a thing you could report out (laughs) maybe an essay but like you you can't report that out like guy feels weird about woman looking at him you know (laughs) (laughs) that's a great onion headline it's it's true (laughs) i mean the onion like in some ways like it always uh it feels more true than a lot of the times headlines right yeah totally yeah yeah at least in its in its heyday, for sure. Uh, what was there? You know, I mean, you said like when you started writing, you didn't even you thought it might go in a drawer, and maybe that was like at best, and maybe it just like wouldn't would go unfinished or something. Was there a point when things started to sort of gain steam that this either started to feel real or started to feel sort of unreal um, to you in terms of like is this really happening or like is is this novel ready for showtime? You know, like. How was that experience? Because I think that that's something that I've from other writers that I've heard is that like you write the thing in isolation and then like somebody's like, I like this. And you're like, do you really like it? Do you like it the right way? <laughs> like, do you really want to publish this? Do you want to publish it now? Can I work on it for another 10 years or like whatever? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know. What, what was your experience of, of going through that? 
So I feel like a lot of the authors I know, they have like these small writing groups of people they trust and whose opinion they trust mm -hmm. and like finding those people and curating those people and, and being close to those people is really important to them. I just like didn't have that at all or mm -hmm. I never, um, I didn't think my thing was good enough to show those people. Um, I did have a, a friend who was an editor at Henry Holt, which is a publisher. Actually, she and I used to watch football together. Um, she was a Vikings fan. <laughs> And, and she published a bunch of like wonderful books. And I just remember she left for LA one year, um, kind of very quickly. And then uh, she came back to visit and, and she was a book agent. And she's like, you don't happen to be working on anything, right? And I think she thought I was, you know, I was at GQ at the time. So I thought she probably thought I was working on, you know, maybe a, a nonfiction project. And I was like, you know, Sarah, I have these pages. I have like 25 pages. I didn't have that much at the time. Um, and I trusted her enough and, I, and she looked at them and she was like, yeah, I'm going to sign you up right now. Whoa. Um, and the reality, wow. too, is like Sarah was like a new agent. So um, I didn't learn this till later. I was her second client. <laughs> um, but I just knew I was like, you know, I don't know if Sarah's a good agent, uh, but I know she's a good editor and she's like got good taste. And, and I was like, we won't sell this first book, but she will she will edit it. And like that experience will make the whole thing worth it. And so I really like wrote just knowing that Sarah would read it yeah. um, and and she would, you know, we were editing it, the manuscript and she was a phenomenal editor. And like, even before we went out with it to publishers, I, I was like, this was good, a good enough experience to have made all the effort worth it. Um, and then it turns out like Sarah is like a great agent. <laughs> so uh, I was very, you know, I know, lucky is the wrong word. Like she's, she's great at a lot of things, but that's not where my expectations were. And uh, I feel very lucky about that. Uh, the, the sort of the, the other side of that coin to me is like also as somebody really deep in the book world, you know, yourself for a long time, actually, did that also feel like a, not like an, not like an imposter situation, but kind of like a, how am I, how do I fit in? Or did, or did it make sense how you fit in? Was that the motivation to write at all was like to sort of like find your way into this thing that you've cared about for so long, but you've been on one side of it. Yeah, I mean, if I'm extremely honest, like, uh, I feel like this is becoming a trend. But at the beginning, when I arrived here, and I was like, meeting authors and, and all these people I really admired, and, and were doing like this work that just seemed like impossible to make to me. You know, like, I just met them, and we would get drinks, and um, they would just become people. Uh, and that made the whole entry point, like, just less intimidating. Yeah. Um, but that said, I still, I still, I never brought up that I was working on a novel to anyone. And in fact, uh, when I when I sold the book, I got a lot of texts that were like congrats it's like fuck you for never telling me you were working on fiction or something like that it's like i thought we were close you know uh did you feel like it was necessary to do that or did you just feel did you feel a sense where like if i don't tell anyone if this goes south then i won't have to make explanations as to why it didn't go the way i wanted it to go yeah i never deliberately hit it you know if someone was like are you working on a novel i would have definitely cop to it but also no one ever asked and i think no one ever <laughs> it's a weird that. question to ask out of the blue <laughs> yeah uh so i i think you know i think you're tapping to something that was real like it must have been some kind of defense mechanism to uh to not talk about it but there's also like and i'm sure you guys experience it's like uh there's like the person you meet at a party and it's like oh what do you do it's just like oh like i'm a writer and it's like oh like what do you write and it's just like well you know like i'm, I'm working on this novel and and then you you get stuck having to ask about it um <laughs> And it turns uh, out like they yeah. haven't really written it at all, right. you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. And they've been meaning uh, to write it. They've been thinking yeah, about writing you know? it for a number of years. 
<laughs> and it, you know it's one thing it's like if they have written a manuscript and they're like trying to polish it up or whatever uh they've like done the work you know uh or a kind of work but there's so many people you meet and just like it's like yeah i'll just call myself a writer yeah. <laughs> i have designs <laughs> to do this work so i think i just really did not want to be that person yeah yeah, well, it's such a like like describe. There, there is something like inherently embarrassing as describing yourself as a writer. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I run into this problem all of the time when I have to sort of say what I do because I do a bunch of different stuff, and I don't, I don't even really. All my answers for what I do are always contextual, depending on what else is going on and how quickly I want to get out of whatever conversation I'm in or how long I want to stay in it. Because, like, I can say English professor, which is only slightly not true although i guess uh, um you know or i can say i'm a teacher and then people just assume that you're a a high school teacher or something or i can say that i'm a writer or a freelancer or whatever and none of those things is entirely true and none of those things are, are, are entirely untrue either but all of them carry some kind of expectation or kind of de- you know sort of in a soft way determine the conversation that's going to follow and novelist is just a big fucking swing man. I mean, you know <laughs> i still i still cannot refer to myself as a novelist like i've literally published a novel and like i just cannot put myself in the same sentence as the word novelist i am a, a one-time novelist yeah i know right <laughs> that's it i know that's actually I I say. Say, yeah just uh it uh well also would come with the expectation that i was like i'll do this again and like yeah i think i want to do it again but i really don't want to commit to that yeah the anxiety of that response is like, yes, I have written a novel. And it's like, well, that's much weirder than just saying that you're a novelist and then we can talk about your novel. Um, you're like, why would you phrase it in that way? <laughs> One thing I want to ask about, too, is like you said you'd run a, like a lit blog. And I think that that's that's a fascinating world that existed, you know, sort of proliferated for a while and was filled with like good feelings and bad you know, there mm-hmm. was a lot of, of nastiness, a lot of trying to call people out, a lot of um, not just tra- kind of trapping people, but a lot of, you know, not I'm not I'm not trying to like force our the topic of our of our podcast into this. But there was a lot of like, you know, these people are legit and these people are illegitimate. Um, mm. uh, did you experience any of that, you know, in your sort of journey through the books world? I mean, to me, you portray you know, not a kind of blustery confidence, but just kind of a natural confidence and somebody who's like read a ton and doesn't really is like, I'm sure that, you know, I'm sure you haven't read a ton of stuff too. And you're like, that's fine. So is everybody else hasn't read a ton of stuff, but there is a kind of in, in book world, there is, there are those figures who are like, you're nobody if you haven't read the, these five things or you know, these 50 things or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> did you ever encounter that or has it ever been? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, I, well, first of all, it's very flattering what you said. I just remember my early days of, of being in New York. A lot of people were just like really nasty to me. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I remember I was at an N plus one party and uh, I think I had been in the city for like two months and uh, it was like a, it was a Halloween party uh, at the N plus one office. So you can imagine how fun that was. Um, and I was like dressed as a skeleton or something. Um, <laughs> Gabe, didn't you DJ a Halloween party at the N plus one office? Is it Halloween? Yes, it was. It was the, Uh-oh. maybe it was the very same. Was it the offices in uh, Williamsburg? Um, I think it was Dumbo. I don't know. It's so long ago. What year was that? It was 2012. I have no memory of it. Uh, yeah. 
I don't remember there being music, honestly. Like I remember there being like like seven people. <laughs> it was um, it was more than that, I think. But but at the one I was at, at the one I was at was not at their office. Actually, it was at a different location. So anyway, I mean, I've been to some really great N plus one parties. Uh, this was this was not one of them. <laughs> you don't have to say I that mean, for yeah, my benefit. Yeah, start backpedaling. <laughs> no. Um, but I remember uh, this woman is like, "Oh, what do you do for a living?" And I was like, "Oh, like you know, I write and then I like I review books." And then she just looked at me and she goes, "Oh, they'll just let anyone review books now." And I was just like, Whoa. "Lady, Whoa. yeah." And then um, I think she was like a she was like an intern for the Nation or something like that. <laughs> uh, and then I was like, she was like in a dress, and I was like, "Oh, what's your Halloween costume?" She's like, "Oh, I'm like a Mad Men character," and I was just like. Which Mad Men character? She's like, you know, just like any of them. <laughs> it's just like, all right. <laughs> like, I don't think you get to judge me. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'll let anyone wear a costume these days. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I'm a skeleton. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always a skeleton. It's just inside my other costume, which is a human. Um, but yeah, I guess back to your sort of point, um, it was interesting because like, I think those early lit blogs, uh, they always felt like they were punching up. Um, mm-hmm. And because they were right, like yeah. they were always just like the New York Review of Books, uh, the New Yorker, the New York Times. <laughs> I guess everything with the word New York in the title, <laughs> you know, like it's just like it's like a cartel of people who all know each other and boosted, you know, the same people's stuff, and and that was true. Um, and these people who felt like they were nobodies but uh, slowly accumulated a kind of influence and power, uh, <laughs> they were really. Like, they were really honest, but yeah. also sometimes like really got off on being vicious. And that's sort of like the weird balance. And um, I think we've gone back the other way now where uh, and and I actually I think I'm also guilty of this, too, where like Twitter, especially people talk about books on Twitter, like it's all good vibes all the time. You know, like we're not really critical of anything. I think a lot of the review outlets now try to not be as critical as they could be, um, which is mm-hmm. is interesting. Um, and I. I don't know. There's there's this thing that's happened where like obviously publishing is 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 not in great shape. Indie bookstores are obviously not in great shape, but that has become a reason to never engage critically with something. Like we just yeah. must we must always be a booster of something, and that's actually been a hard thing for me to reckon with. As um, I mean, I don't think I've ever been like a super harsh person, but you know, like now that I'm an author, like I. F- I kind of feel like I have to be nice to everybody, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, in a way that I've never felt before. And it also betrays uh, like how I feel as a journalist. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. That's that's the thing I'm like wrestling with. Yeah, I had that. I mean, I had that experience. I wrote a negative. I was asked to write uh, a review of a book by a very well-known place um, that I had written for before. And they asked me to do it like kind of last minute. And I did it. And it was a negative review because I thought it was a fucking terrible book, <laughs> and it was spiked because it was negative. Yeah, and and the the publication wanted a relationship with the author, and I got like an email from the editor in chief, basically being like, "We like this person, so no." And it was like, "Okay, uh, I didn't think that things had gotten this bad, but you know." I mean, we're we're also like kind of tacit in it, right? Like, you're not naming the publication or the book, and like, I wouldn't ask you to. Um, <laughs> yeah. But like, yeah, like we also like have this weird, like we have to protect ourselves. We're also like exposed. Um, yeah. In that way, I mean, especially especially now because like God, I mean, you you talked about YA literature before. God help you if you cross the wrong person on YA book Twitter. Yeah. Like you could really get damaged 
uh, you know, in your professional life. Or write a YA novel that has like something that someone misinterprets and then it, you know, snowballs into something horrible for everyone. (laughs) You know, I mean, I think that it's like it goes back to it goes back before that. But I think that the main the thing that I, I remember noticing was like the BuzzFeed books thing when there was like a line in the sand. It was like, we're not going to write any negative reviews because we're not about that. We're going to like find books that are great. We're going to write, you know, not necessarily just positive, but like interesting things about those books. That was the idea. And that that kind of like gained steam in a way that I never would have presumed. And I think that there is this really nice aspect to it where it's like all kinds of authors supporting each other uh, and particularly supporting authors who are underrepresented or who are just coming up or whatever uh, and and trying to fight the kind of uh, you know, monoculture, that's a good thing. Trying to like fight sort of you know traditional canons, that's a good thing. Um, trying to like obliterate sort of the pissing contest culture of of culture, which is the thing that we talk about all the time on the show. But at the same time, you do lose something when mm-hmm. like nothing can be bad <laughs> and nothing can be like you know and and there's no there's no requirement for what you need to know to say something. Yeah. The, but the Buzzfeed books thing is really interesting because it's, it's this thing happened like five or six years ago and we're still talking about it. And I'm still thinking about it in some ways. Um, Maybe we should say, right. That was like a huge deal when it happened, right. Buzzfeed books launched. And it was, bef- an it was explicit- four months before it launched. Uh, okay. And they explicitly said, we are not doing negative reviews. Yeah. I, I have a complicated feeling with that because so a lot of people came out really hard against that. You know, BuzzFeed did not do books coverage before that. Um, I think BuzzFeed does a lot of, of great serious journalism. But, like, the book section, I think, was going to live in, like, the lifestyle section. Um, and I think the people who are, like, vocally the most critical of it, it's like, they just, they were frustrated because, like, they realized that the places that were supposed to be critical were already doing that thing, right? Like, they really weren't being very critical of literature at all it was already happening uh, yeah it was already happening and, and buzzfeed was just like gonna just be really upfront about that um mm-hmm. and so i don't know uh that that whole moment is interesting especially in hindsight um because like i don't know you even look at like the major newspaper that covers books and like most of the content they do is like lists of books you should read yeah you know like mm-hmm. that is what buzzfeed promised to do and, and did quite well i think and and you see this this national newspaper based in New York, <laughs> just doing the same thing, right? Um, and taking notes from that playbook. And then, um, and they were the most critical of the BuzzFeed thing in the first place. Um, and I, you know, it just, the irony is not lost on me. I mean, I mean, I guess the, the thing to point to, right? I mean, we had said earlier, right? Is that the sense that Twitter and that the general democratization of not of publishing writ large because like, you know, the, you know, the sort of publishing clicks that you had talked about are very real and still in place in large measure, but that, you know, you can, if you have energy and the desire to do it and a passion for doing it, go and make a name for yourself as some with, without one of those platforms. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so that they see their job as just being better recommendation engines yeah, in some sense than, I, I don't know. I mean, is this just about the kind of like, I want to say it's about the, devaluiza- the devaluation of criticism as a kind of practice or vocation, but that seems like a little amorphous and airy to me. Well, what's kind of funny is, I don't know, I, I 
It's like TV critics and film critics have not softened themselves at all, yeah. I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, even as, yeah, especially yeah. like, uh, I work at GQ, like, access journalism is is tough, you yeah. know? Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know, but like, the critics in those spaces have still walled themselves in. I think there's a thing where it's just like, there are just like way fewer movies that come out in a year than there are books, right? Um, and there are just more outlets that run film reviews and there are more people that watch films. So like, it's easy to be as a like a film critic to be insulated and not affected by running negative criticism but like man like i still trust film critics in a way they don't trust book critics yeah. you know um yeah and in some ways like i think film is is i don't know i don't want to draw too strong a, a line or a correlation but just like tv and film are like very healthy industries um in a way that publishing mm-hmm. is not and i just think our protection of of books um has actually devalued them in weird broad strokes well so in, in other words right there was a there was a time not so long ago where if you published a best-selling novel you made a lot of fucking money right. mm-hmm. and you made money you can live off of and publishers would invest in their authors and give them and you know for the for the big ones would make sure they had time and space and resources to do what they did because it was a big investment for them and one that could pay off in big ways and that's with a handful of exceptions, just not true anymore of publishing that the size of advances and contracts and royalties have all plummeted, especially in the last 20 years to the point where when you are attacking a big author, you're not really attacking someone who has power in the same kind of measurable way than say like Norman Mailer had power in, you know, at the peak of his career, like, you know, someone, even someone who is like... Norman Mailer stabbed his wife and got away with it. Sure did, yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. William Burroughs shot his wife and got away with it. Like, you know, this is this is, this is is an, an index of power, right? Whereas there's... Where it's, it's true that people who are determining the shape of film and television really do have a lot of power, and powerful creators, producers, and showrunners in those industries control you know, or, or have exert influence over the lives of many, many, many people. Mm-hmm. That's just not true anymore. But it's interesting that you're saying that, like, the fact that there's so much less money, therefore so much less power in publishing has led to this kind of paradoxical effect where the desire to protect it has just ended up weakening it. Yeah. Right? And you can even look at, like, people freak out when, like, a quote-unquote takedown review gets published now where it's just like, you know... That's just a negative review. (laughs) I know. It's funny for like people just like, oh, this person got roasted and just like it actually is just it's not that hard, honestly. Um, Yeah. And I I say this with it's as someone with no solutions. Right. Like I understand the move in this direction. I feel the effects of that. Um, You know, it's funny being an author, too. uh, Speaking of like the erosion of your values, like. I remember talking to a friend at lunch. Um, I had just learned that the Times was going to review my book. And they're like, oh, my God, congratulations. And I was like, oh, my God, like, what if it's negative, though? Like, that's going to crush me. And they're just like, they're like, the Times is not going to eviscerate a debut author. <laughs> and that gave me some comfort, but it was like a condescending kind of patronizing comfort. And I was like, well, it's like it removes the stakes. It's like, well, I'd like to think that they consider right. it. Yeah, I was like, like oh, wait, then, like now if it's my... a positive review, like, which it was, I'm just like, oh, maybe they have to say that. <laughs> <laughs> or it's just, yeah, or it's just, or, you know, but what you do is you assign to someone you know is going to give it a positive 
positive review or whatever. But, you know, I, I feel bad in that sense that I wish you could have the experience of having, you know, been like, I could really get destroyed right now. Like this could fuck me up forever. And then being able to overcome that and being like, yes, I got the positive review. Right. There is something a little bit sad about the, about the kind of like leveling of stakes in that way, where even people who write good books like you've done, you can't really be sure that a review is an indicator of some kind of measure of broader cultural acceptance (laughs) as niche as it is in the publishing world right yeah you know you're definitely tapping into something that like i have felt pretty acutely um (laughs) not really talked about a lot but um yeah like all of the reviews i've had have been have been positive but you know like some of them i feel like have um missed the point of the book in weird ways Mm -hmm. or have been like even in major publications like real heavy on synopses or like right. the first hundred pages of the book and it like mm-hmm. it just makes the question it's like man this motherfucker really read the book you know <laughs> <laughs> like happy to have the positive review but like the some part of me is like i just i just want people to engage with the work and and so mm-hmm. the most meaningful parts of this have been um the handful of of people I, who have emailed me after reading the book and 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 really mm-hmm. harped in on like one specific thing and been like this really spoke to me or, or i didn't get this or um, and that, that's been the coolest part. And, um, as much as like a cesspool as Goodreads is like, there are, like, I would say like nine out of 10 reviews. I'm just like, this is a long retelling of the jacket copy. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, even when they like it, but there are like a handful of reviews in there and who are just like, there's no stakes for them. They're not famous. And like, they go in pretty hard and they go in really specific. And, and that is it just like knowing that there's that level of engagement, um, has been gratifying. And I, I wish there was. There was more of that coming out of mainstream publications. Well, we've been going at it for a while. I think this is a probably a, a good place to end yeah. on this note. So uh, Kevin Wynn is the author of New Waves. He's an editor at The Verge. And what's your Twitter handle? Uh, it's Kane Wynn. Kane Wynn. Find him on Twitter. Find him wherever. Yeah. Go buy his book and and read it. You can read the whole thing, even past the first hundred. Yeah, don't pages. just don't just in your brain. Don't just like record the <laughs> the events that happen, and then like do a synopsis when somebody asks you how it was. Listen, at the very least, if you're gonna leave like a weird synopsis for you, just give me the five stars. <laughs> just, just give it to me. <laughs> the least you can do. Uh, uh, Kevin, thanks for spending part of your quarantine yes. with yeah, us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, guys. This is great. Thank yeah. you. All right. Yeah. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Bye.